You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 203. Bop, 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 bop. Is, that, is that a big one? Oh, wait. No, I forgot. I'm sorry. Hold on. Let me start over. You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 203. So, yeah. Yeah. Integrity. Yeah. Yes. I think, is that too NPR-ish or is that more late night DJ? Well, well, Outlaw okay. just rolled out of bed. That's why. That's why we got no, the come on fire boys going on. <laughs> Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcasts. Visit us at codingblocks.net, where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net, and head over to the twitters at codingblocks. Or head to www.codingblocks.net. <laughs> social links at the top of the page. I immediately regret my decision. <laughs> that I'm Howard Rogan. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but it was funny. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I'm Alan Underwood. You don't listen to the Howard Rogan show? I've never heard of Howard Rogan. I think you've mentioned him before. Was he the ASMR stuff? No, I just said <laughs> that, was, that was something totally different. Uh, uh, no, the portmanteau of Howard Stern and Joe Rogan. That's, uh, <laughs> I was trying to do my impression. I, can't, I, I guess I didn't do very good if you didn't recognize those voices. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. All right. So, hey, we are actually going to talk about some programming stuff today. Maybe in normal voices, maybe not. Um, so we're back with designing data intensive applications and today we're going to be talking about single and multi object operations, uh, related to transactions. So before that though, we got some reviews that outlaw needs to read off for the world to hear. Yep. So, uh, you know, Dom bell 30, you, now you regret mentioning, uh, your, your miss of the, uh, late night DJ voices. Don't you, 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 you heard that intro and you're like, uh, I shouldn't have said it. Oh, is this so, where this came from? <laughs> we have somebody to thank. <laughs> That's amazing. And then uh Ton 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 Two. Uh thank you very much. And uh oh I know I messed up. That one was a repeat from last week. So uh yeah, those two are new reviews. All right, excellent. Thank uh, you hey, much. Don't forget. Uh, leave a comment on this episode you might want a book. And speaking of book, uh I just noticed this book was actually on Audible, so I picked that up. And I've uh, been listening to it. It's pretty great. <laughs> I think I think you said there a little bit quicker about, about going through the book than we are. Yeah, yeah. You can actually listen to the whole book in about as long as it takes uh, to, to listen to an episode. Uh, that's, that's, I'm that hurts. But yeah, it's much shorter. Uh, in fairness, the, the, the um, screenshot you sent were like just like the very super small paragraph sections. Yeah. Not yeah. like the chapter. Yeah. They were, and in fairness, also listening to the technical stuff like that, you got to be hyper focused because at some point you'll just find yourself drilling on your keyboard and having to rewind half of what you missed, anyways, right? Yeah, that's why you listen to Coding Box while you're eating your Taco Bell or whatever. That's right. We keep Taco you awake. Del Taco, your correction. Del Taco. Del Taco. Hold on. Del Taco. Taco Bell versus Del Taco. Taco Bell, man. I think they went better. Yeah. They brought the Mexican pizza back, man. No, they brought the Mexican pizza back. Del Taco is way spicier. Seasoning is better. Del Taco no, is greater. Del Taco greater than Taco Bell. Jay-Z, I mean, if Taco we're talking Bell about like or- crappy fast food tacos, then. Whoa. Yeah, right? <laughs> Taco Whoa. Bell. Taco Bell versus Del Taco. Jay-Z. Which one? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously Taco Bell's the winner there. 
It's got yeah. that, that microwave flavor that's hard to replicate. <laughs> the, the corn tortillas have that cardboard uh, crispness that you just can't replicate. Man, yeah. the beefy five cardboard. Nah, dude, the beefy five layer burrito. If you haven't gotten it, you're missing out. You need to go get that one. Yeah. Good. At right, any rate, okay. Joe was beating himself up because, you know, the audio version of the book, uh, you know, every section of it was like two minutes, but those weren't the chapters. So, like, at first right. glance, he was like, oh, my gosh, they're fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're still probably a little bit quicker than we are, but they don't talk about Taco Bell and Del Taco. That's true. missing out. So, hey, one other thing, too, uh, we've sort of started remembering to mention this is, hey, if you want some stickers or anything, we have a swag page. Go to codingblocks.net slash swag, and you can get a get an address where you can send an envelope, and we will send you stuff back. Now, you so, said or anything. So if they were like, hey, I want a pony. <laughs> I, we might have some some dryer lint left over that we could we could share something. I don't know. We We have all kinds of things, right? So there could be a surprise comeback. Wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, also, before I forget, I want to mention that Orlando Code Camp is coming up. It is a free event, and you get lunch, too. In uh, Sanford, Florida, you know, basically Central Florida area that you should go to. It's going to have a, a bunch of different talks. Uh, like, the, the talks are going to be announced soon. Uh, it's a really awesome event. Went on hiatus for a couple of years during, like, kind of peak COVID, but it's back now, better than ever. And uh, you should go check it out if you're anywhere nearby or if you like making a road trip. Hey, and and I think all three of us can attest. That is a fantastic event they put on there. Um, one of the better code camps that I've been to, and we've been to several different places, so... Uh, if you're anywhere near it, I highly recommend checking it out. It's fire. I think you could say it's fire. <laughs> I think they said, I hope they said that. Otherwise, I don't know. Uh, that that passed good. on last year. Who knows? Oh, no. Hello, fellow kids. I am now with the four one one. I love music band. <laughs> with the four one one. That's amazing. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Get the show started. Yeah, let's do it. Right, so we're talking <laughs> transactions this is chapter seven. Uh, we're picking up with single object and multi object uh, operations. And so, uh, you know, single object we talked a little bit about last time, uh, basically being able to, you know, either do it or not do it and not have changes in, in progress that kind of get uh, mixed up and in bad shape. Uh, multi object transactions need to know which reads, reads and writes are part of the same transaction and uh, as we talked about last time, it kind of got started in the 70s with uh, first relational databases. Uh, and in that case, uh, in relational databases, the transactions are typically handled by tracking the connection. Uh, yeah, that was interesting. Sort of, yeah, unique identifier that you're able to use to identify. And then also having state statements wrapped in with like a begin transaction and commit transaction down to the end to kind of like put it in the logical block to mark the transaction. Yeah, so the the thing where it's being handled by the connection, that makes a ton of sense. Um, they said typically that's how it's done. So I was kind of curious, like, if there are other ways that it's maybe done in there. I guess they could do it in a stateless way. I, I'd never really thought about it, but I don't know. Just when they said it was typically done that way, it kind of jumped out at me like, huh. I mean, it makes total sense. It's the one thing that's usually stable for for all the the processes, all the all the commands that you've issued. Yeah, except that part where uh, I was like, "Well, that can't possibly be uh, good enough, right?" Was 
in regards to like connection pooling, right? Well, so you so, have one connection, yeah. <laughs> multiple things are coming in, and that database, the the IP connection to it might be abstracted, you know, because it might be all coming from an, a single API, uh, you know, server, or at least yeah. like some some known set, some known quantity of them, not necessarily just one, but. I'm sure there's some sort of unique identifier that goes along with those connection pools that, that makes it act like it's a, a single connection, right? That'd be my guess, but I'm sure there's all kinds of, of little tiny operational things that happen behind the scenes there. But the thing that they call out next is a lot of non-relational databases don't have a way of grouping these statements together, right? So if you update order details and update um, inventory, they don't, you know, whereas the the previous with the transactions would do that with the connection, this this kind of doesn't have a way, and and so they a lot of times just don't even handle it. They they did kind of go just rewinding one moment to my point though. They did the author did address that in the footnote that uh, <clears throat> where um, how did he refer to it about there being uh, a tra- transactional manager that would keep up with uh, a unique transaction identifier. And then okay. that way it's not bound. And if the client did lose a connection, you know, for any reason, it's not necessarily like completely lost. Um, but it is covered later in the book in more, in more depth. Oh, that's good. So uh, this is one thing where we've talked about this before. You have the actual hardcover copy of the, or not hardcover. You have the, the physical copy of this, right? Yes. I have the Kindle version of it, which I usually like way better. But one thing that is annoying when you're reading the Kindle versions is when they have links to like footnotes and stuff, like it takes you away from where you are and it's not super easy to get back. There's like no back button. Yeah. So that's one of the things that's kind of irritating. That's probably why I missed the footnote is because anytime that they have links to those things, I'm like, man, I don't really want to lose where I am. Right. So you don't want to be taken out of the moment. Exactly. So, all right, yeah. well, just call me Michael, uh, footnote reader outlaw, and uh, I like it. Yeah, just a quick reminder, too, on kind of how uh, a lot of uh, not new SQL type databases work. Remember, if we talked about this uh, early on, like it, uh, one common way for uh, for non relational databases to work is uh, to basically work on a quorum model, uh, relying on eventual consistency, meaning your client is going to reach out to all the various primaries and blast out its update. And then once it receives enough of a signal back saying like maybe seven, 10, seven tenths of the uh, replicas have said, I got it. And you say, okay, I'm going to trust the others to catch up via some other mechanism. I'm going to get out of here. And so you can imagine how that kind of thing, like doesn't really work too great with like multi-object transactions where you need everything to be done everywhere to make sure it's in a consistent state. Just kind of doesn't really jive with that idea. Yeah, it, it definitely makes things more difficult, right? Because <laughs> now your object or your order details in your inventory are out of sync across, you know, multiple replicas. So um, the, now they get back into the single object transactions. And this part was interesting to me because it seems like it, it's obvious, but then they call out some things. So um, single object transactions must be atomic and isolated, right? Um so what happens if you're writing a block of data, but the connection was interrupted in the middle of the write? That's one, one situation where things could go wrong. Um, what if there was a failure 
while updating an old block of data. So now you have a mixture of new and old, like what happens then? Um, reading values while in the process of updating. So, you know, outlaws in the middle of updating a record. I'm in the middle of reading a record. It's only halfway through. What do I get back as the reader? Right. So those, those are things you have to think about. Yeah. There was also uh, a comment in this area of the book too, where someone thought like that failure to, or that uh, the writing the block of data, but the connection is lost thing. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that writing the block of data, uh, like that, that could have been successful, but then what do you do? Like, how do you return back? And there's later an example where uh, they talked about like, imagine the author was using um, like we, we've been using our canonical reference of uh, an e-commerce kind of site, you know, for a lot of the subjects that we talk about on the show. Right. And in this portion of the book, the author was using like an email system as part of it. And he was like, he gives this example of, well, you wouldn't necessarily want to keep resending the email on a retry just because, you know, you weren't able to acknowledge a success the first time or something like that. Right. So you can see where there is definitely complexity in even in this single uh, object idea. Well, in that case, in, in that specific example, he was talking about multi, but you know, the idea being that something could have technically succeeded. You just can't acknowledge the success. Right, because the failure happened right after the success, and so your connection to it to get to get the acknowledgement back failed. So, so what do you do in your application at that point? Right, like, and that's that's a tough one. That's a, that's a harder one for for the developers to work on. But hopefully, behind the scenes, the database worked out actually completing the data, so you're not in a bad state, right? And that's that's kind of what they were talking about. I mean, again you know, because of this book, right? Like when you're reading this book, put your, you know, the hat that you should be wearing is not like I'm the e-commerce developer, but instead I'm the developer creating a database, right? Or, you know, like I'm going to create the database from scratch and this is how you might use it. And so, uh, as, as reading this kind of, this book, this portion of the book, I was kind of thinking like, how would you handle that section? Like, you know, you you can't acknowledge the success. So do you do you assume that the app developer writing the e-commerce site is going to like re-query the status to say like, hey, is that product still available in stock? Because I still want to try to place the order. But one thing where like I was thinking about this, our canonical e-commerce reference kind of breaks down in in this at least in this area of the book, and maybe why the author chose to not use it is in the e-commerce example. Um, like one of the things I was thinking of was like from an inventory point of view, like you can't, you, you're trying to update your inventory and, uh, it fails. Right. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to sell it. You don't want to make it available for sale. So you still want the, the customers to be able to, uh, place their orders just because you're having some kind of technical problem. Cause in the meantime, you still have sitting on your warehouse floor inventory that you want to get rid of. Right. So you don't want something like this to stop it, right? So that that's the problem. And I mean, we kind of hinted at that in, in the, I think it was the previous episode where we where we were talking about, yeah, it was the previous one where we were talking about uh, the transactions where, you know, I kind of like, as we were describing it, it kind of dawned on me like, wait a minute, e-commerce is probably a bad example in this case. Well, but, but that's where things get way more complicated, right? So what we're talking about here is in a database, right? Like a single database or whatever. The reality is 
if you were worried about those type of things, you wouldn't just be doing a database, right? You'd probably have a queuing system out there that, that would get used for working against the inventory. You'd probably have a queuing system for placing the orders as well. Right. So, I mean, maybe, you know, you hope that, I mean, you, it, let's say, let's say maybe, and it certainly sounds nice, but we've definitely been at smaller shops where totally. that is not the case. Totally. And so, you know, uh, my, going back to my point of, you know, as an e-commerce type environment, you might be willing to, this is where like the author made the point of like, you know, your, your needs are going to vary, right. Mm-hmm. Based on, based on uh, what your use case is. And this is one of those cases where like in the e-commerce example, you might be willing to, uh, let the orders flow through and then, and then reconcile inventory later. You know, it's kind of like even in the physical stores, right. That where they'll do, uh, you know, the employees will take inventory of what's in the store after the fact, right. They're not trying to necessarily, I mean, they're, they're, they're keeping up with it in real time as best they can, you know, like every time they make a sell, right. But that doesn't necessarily make it so, and they don't, they're not going to like not sell you something because they're like, well, hold on, my inventory says I have four of those, and and you want, I, I know that you have five presented in front of me, but I I only show four in the computer, right? They're going to sh- they're going to sell you all five. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things that boils down to if you're an Amazon, you have things in place for all this, right? If you're little mom and pop shop that's starting up selling your own um, widgets on on Etsy or something. Yeah, you probably you're probably not going to have these things in place, right? And then you're going to just face those problems when they come along. So, um, hey, so so getting back to the reading, like all those all those weird problems that we talked about, like something fail in the middle of a write or middle of read, whatever. It's for that reason that all databases have to support single object atomicity and isolation. So, I think that's. That's probably even goes for distributed databases. Um, like you can't have something fail in the middle of a read and then replicate or, or in the middle of a write and replicate out to everywhere. So they basically say everything has to has to deal with that. Yeah, I actually went looking to see if there's any that don't. I thought if all major databases have atomic operations, maybe there was one out there. Maybe someone had a use case in the wide world where they would want to accept partial values, maybe just get everything they can. And even if it's incorrect, maybe it's a database that doesn't care about, uh, you know, accuracy or something. I couldn't find any. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense, right? Like, yeah, I couldn't think of a single use case either where I would want that. But I thought maybe like a logging situation, or maybe a sensor where it's like if it shuts off midway, like it's really important or like a black box in an airplane. It's like, hey, if you shut off recording uh, in the middle of the last message, maybe I really want that last message. You know, even if it's partial, like I still want it, whatever you got. But I, I just couldn't find anyone talking about anything like that. That's interesting. Yeah. So. um, Let's see. So the atomicity, they say that's achievable with a log for crash recovery, right? So we've talked about the write ahead logs and all that kind of stuff. So, so basically you're writing to a log before you write the record or, or right around the same time. And if something fails on the record update, when the system comes back up, then it can go back, read through the log and say, okay, this is what it's supposed to be. And then redo it from there. I think we talked about that a long time ago. We did. Chapter, uh, and there's also isolation, which is the uh, idea of um, basically locking the object to be written, making sure that no two writers are trying to uh, to write to the object at the same time. 
And uh, sometimes there's uh, some kind of complex setups that like a lot of things like we mentioned uh, incrementing last episode where you might want to have a, like a plus one operator that can go and read the value and write it in a single operation where you don't have to worry about, you know, something happening in between that read and write where it just kind of does the addition. And uh, you can imagine some other kind of setups like minus minus, uh, same kind of thing too. I can't think of too many more you'd want to do. Or I guess I'm um, swapping values. So you might want to do like an upsert type operation in a single value. And another thing though, this made me like super appreciate going through the exercise of this book. Again, putting on the, the hat of like, you're the person writing the database. Like you're trying to, you know, like if you had to do this from scratch, how might you do it kind of thing. Right. If you um, come from Kafka, right. When you're sizing Kafka, one of the things that you have to consider <clears throat> is the number of uh, topics and the number of partitions and uh, that, that you're going to have on those topics and the number of those that might exist on any one broker uh, in your in your cluster. And the reason why is because there is overhead for every file handle that Kafka has to manage. And for every partition of every topic, there's two files that are being managed, right? So you could almost think of the same as it, as here. Like, so a new thing that I got to thinking about, was like from the write ahead log perspective, like, well, I never really heard about it written, talked about like this from like a SQL server world, you know, it was always like the write ahead log, even in like a Postgres, you know, kind of environment, but like, well, maybe you want a, a write ahead log per table or, or, you know, like, would there be an advantage or a disadvantage to when you would or wouldn't want something like that? Like, would, would you want, you have a file handle for every, ta- for every, uh, partition of the table, which it might not be a partition to table per se, like not to confuse it with the technical thing. So like, uh, the indexes of the table, right. Um, but you know, and then if you also had write ahead logs for each individual tables, like how many file handles might be open? Just, just wrap your head around, like how many file handles might be opened on like a given instance of SQL server or Oracle or Postgres or DB2 or whatever, Right, poor DB two. No one's. There's no file handles open. But um, now there's file handles open. I'm sorry, DB two. Uh, there's. <laughs> but you, you understand what I'm saying, though. Like so, in in all of all of my career up to this date, like leading up to like thinking about like, oh, I, I want to build out a database cluster. I never concerned myself with like the number of file handles that might be open. And then comes along Kafka, and it's like one of the first things I'm hit with is like, Hey, by the way, you need to consider the overhead of the, of the file handle because in, Oh, by the way, like in Linux specifically, like I ran into this specifically for Kafka. There's, there's a U limit that you could set on, uh, you know, how many open file handles you will allow the system have. Cause otherwise like there's a limit that Linux will say like, Nope, no more. And you can't open a file. Then you're shot. Yeah. So, yeah, crazy. I don't know. I don't know if that if anything like that had crossed crossed your minds while uh you know, reading this portion of the book. Not specifically. Yep. Man, I'm in left field. Okay. 
No, no I wouldn't say you're no. in left field. No, no, I was making a joke because I'm like, of course, like specifically, I didn't assume that you had like that very specific <laughs> thought. Well, very the, specific <laughs> like, like the file handles, right? Like that, that hadn't really entered my mind. But there again, like when you were setting up Kafka, you very much were involved with having to know exactly what you needed to do there. Right. And, and like you said, when you're setting up SQL server or Postgres or any of them, like you, you don't, you're not bothered with any of that. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess that another way, it's kind of a testament to those products, right? Like the oracles and SQL servers and Postgres and whatever that, you know, you don't have to think about that, but like in a Kafka world, you, you have to be in the nuts and bolts of it to set it up. And so, Things like the number of file handles that you're going to have open come to come into mind. They matter. Yeah. I mean, it's like put front and center, like, hey, consider this. Well, otherwise it's going to fail, right? And it's going to fail spectacularly because that's the whole point of Kafka is, is being able to write crazy amounts of data to the thing. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Um, so the 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 isolation and all that kind of stuff we were talking about, they said these type of operations uh, with the incrementer and all that, to, to keep things in line, they're useful for ensuring <clears throat> good rights when multiple clients are attempting to write the same object concurrently, right? So me, Outlaw, and Jay-Z all trying to write the same record. Um, it says these aren't real transactions. When you're doing a single object, it's not a real transaction. They're kind of lightweight transactions. But unfortunately, a lot of database systems out there will call these ACID. Um, for marketing purposes, again, because, hey, well, we support making sure that this single object right happens properly. That's not really ACID. So, um, again, it's marketing speak, whatever. But usually when you're talking about a transaction, you're talking about a group of things that all have to happen at the same time and be committed, you know, as a group. Otherwise, removed, right? Like roll back to the original state. Can you imagine database being like, we fully support uh, ACID transactions. You're like, okay, great. Let me uh, dive into the API and. Oh, single object transactions. That's, uh, I mean, like you better do that. We've just talked about like, <laughs> that's kind of a requirement and the most basic requirement of the database. Yeah. Otherwise I just put things in files and, and call it a day, right? Like yeah, why, why do I need your system? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, about those multi object transactions. Uh, so many distributed databases don't have those transactions because they're tough. It's really hard to implement, especially across uh, different partitions. So, you know, even like past the node level, just kind of splitting things up is is difficult. And it's got a lot of performance implications and uh, implications for availability. And there's really no technical reason that distributed transactions aren't possible. It's just a lot of work. And that's something we kind of talked about, too, with like the database papers and a lot of the, the ideas that we've talked about kind of coming from the 70s and stuff is, uh, just because they were theorized back then, it didn't mean people were actually able to implement. So a lot of things that modern databases give us that have come around in the last even like 10, 20 years, like, you know, we mentioned Kafka a lot, uh, are ideas that are old, but it took a long time to really evolve the tools and evolve the systems to where they're capable of actually implementing these like global ideas in a way that's like practical and usable. Yeah, they get into the details of. Oh, sorry, but yeah, they get into the details of how how those distributed track distributed transactions can be made possible in a later chapter. So I do look forward to when we get to that because even non distributed, like you know, I still my mind is still racing with like uh, 
how you'd have to do this. And like to the idea that there are these uh, like blocks of code where you've like, like object locked it, you know, so that, uh, you know, only one thread is going through it at a time. And like, how do you know how many, like all the different files that you had to like put in that same lock block in order to, you know, write and save them out or not. Right. Still crazy. That's still a crazy uh, thing to me. Like, because, you know, they didn't know how many database what the tables were going to be at the time. Right. Like, uh, just, I don't know. Just still, uh, I guess, I guess I'm really growing to appreciate the, the, uh, shoulders that we're standing on, you know, that, that made these things as, as we get deeper into the, into the subject. Yeah. So, uh, they, uh, ask a question in the book that I like, uh, do we even need transactions just as a whole, as an industry? Um, you know, well, like what are the situations in which case we, we actually truly need them? And uh, the best answer, uh, you know, speaking from a kind of multi-object perspective, is basically anytime that there's any sort of dependency between uh, table links, uh, rows, other tables, so like foreign keys, for example, um, where data changes together, essentially. And there's not a lot of use cases in a relational database, so I can imagine, where you don't need those kind of relations. Yeah. What's what's really interesting is they start to talk about in non-relational systems, so like a Mongo or whatever. So typically, you don't think about about records relating to other records, right? You store everything in one in one document, right? But then they bring up what everybody should really think about is, um, even though they're not linking to documents and other tables, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll bury the original document into another one, right? So the easiest one to go with is like a forum post, right? So we all have our user records. Well, in, in a database, you would just link back to the user ID, right? Like M outlaw, J Zach, Al a Underwood. And, and when the page is rendered, you go look up the information from that user. Well, in something like Mongo, you're just going to put the user information in the document with the post. And then that way you don't have to go look it up at this time. Well, what they talk about here is, well, even in those database systems, if you update Alan Underwood's information in his profile, that needs to be updated in all those forum posts, right? So that is a relational, like a, a transactional type thing. And if you don't update that information in all places, then now you're going to have a disconnect from the actual user's information to the forum posts. Right. And so it, that actually should technically potentially be a transaction, right? You need to update all those instances where that user's profile information exists. Yeah. That's pretty scary. <laughs> you getting wrong results. And, I guess uh, it would depend yeah. on the use case though. Cause if it, if it truly uh, was like super important, then you probably, you might not be using a document database for that particular use case. Right. You yeah, hope. totally. And we've talked about search engines. A lot of times they don't have precise results because their indexes are kind of, I don't want to say sloppy, but they're just not optimized for that. And so a lot of times you'll see, yeah. And you'll see a search result where it's like um, showing you uh, results, one of thousands. And you're like, well, wait, how many thousands don't you know? And it's like, nah, 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, those numbers fluctuate a little bit and depending on all sorts of situations. So, well, that's the thing about like Google, even back from the original, you know, its original days, right? You know, you would do some search and it'd be like page one of, you know, 999,000. Like, how did you get so many so fast? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you know? Okay. I want to see 989,999 page. Oh, you got a page there. Hey, hey, but back to what you said though, outlaw, and this is, this is where, you know, I, I agree and disagree. You said, you know, people wouldn't use a document database for, for something like that, right? If it was important, the relation but, was important. So I don't know that that's true. I honestly think that people will start up and be like, we're using Mongo, right? Like that's, that's what we're using. We're using Mongo. They don't care if it's relational or not. They don't care that it's just, Hey, this is, this is the database we're using. And on a similar plane, people that are used to SQL server, Oracle, that kind of stuff, they're like, Hey, we're starting with SQL server, right? Like they don't think about the use case. And I mean, we've, I don't know, maybe we talked about this way back in the past. Like if you're doing a relational database system, let's go back to the e-commerce, um, story that we have one of the things that is actually challenging is you have your home address right and you order something well in a relational database you usually have your address attached to your user right and then you order something and at the time that you go look up your the you know it's got to be shipped it's going to go look up your information and send it out well that's not actually a great order um e-commerce setup Really what you want is, hey, where do you want this ship to? And that should live with that order. It shouldn't be a relational link to anything else. It should be on that order forever because that is where you said you want that thing to go. And that actually makes more sense for like a document database, right? Here's your order information. Nested in it is the address it's going to be sent to. Nested in it is the is the order details and all that kind of stuff, right? And so really what you're talking about is, a mixture of a relational database system and an object database make a ton of sense there. But in reality, you know, people are going to use whatever they feel most comfortable with. And that's, that's what kind of stinks. And so it's kind of nice to know that there are these, these, these competing things, especially with transactions that you have to be concerned about. Well, I I mean, yes, I, I agree in that example, you, you could do it. Although in even in as you were describing the example, I was thinking of like ways that you could easily implement that in a relational database. Totally, you still have like you know a, an orders table and an order shipping address table. You know where the shipping address is not tied to, uh, you know the customer's address book per se. It's just yep. this is the address that's being used for the to ship the order. Um, so but so I think that's that's different. And, you know, so I guess the point is that like in my mind. You know, if you have a need where it truly, truly matters, then, you know, uh, and, and depending on the size and speed and whatnot, then, you know, it might be worth going the, the database, the uh, relational route. And that's not to say that, that one size fits all is going to work. There was actually <clears throat> somebody shared, uh, a, an article. I don't know if you guys saw it. I don't know. I'm trying to remember where I saw it now. I'm pretty sure it was in our Slack. Um, where the idea was, uh, you know, if, you know, that, that old thing about like, um, if SQL server is your nail is is your hammer, then everything's a nail and you're going to like, you know, and, and the article was making the point of like, well, yeah, but is it worth, uh, that's true. And so if you have this one other use case that maybe Kafka would be better, or maybe, 
maybe a Mongo would be better, or maybe an Elastic would be better. If you have this one other use case, if SQL Server is solving, or Oracle or Postgres, whatever, is solving, you know, 99% uh, of your use cases, except for this one, is it really worth bringing on an entirely new technology stack for that one thing? Because even though it might excel at that one thing, uh, you know, the other technology, in, in this case, I was picking on SQL Server, is a known quantity for all of your developer, for all your team, right? Like everyone knows what its capabilities are, what its pitfalls are, how to deal with errors and everything. So, you know, maybe to your point, uh, if, if Mongo is your hammer, and you know you know how to deal with it and deal with it well then sure you know if 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 there was only like a single use case that you know or or a limited a very small limited number of use cases that you were concerned with then it might not be worth bringing on the the bulk of another technology that now you know the team has to get up to speed on and inevitably what will happen is the entire team isn't going to get up to speed on it. You're going to have some members of the team that will quietly revolt and be like, I'll never touch that thing. And they'll never bother to, you know, really get up to speed on it. You'll have some that'll like super dive deep into it and figure it out. And then you'll have some that will like just surface level, you know, reluctantly touch it, but won't get super deep. So even then, and that, you know, when you do have problems in that scenario, you're going to have only have those few that, you know, dug super deep into the problem. So that's the, that's the reality. That is the reality. And that's always, Hey, that's also always a question that should be at the back of your head. You shouldn't just willy nilly add things to your stack for no reason, right? Like there has to be a really good compelling reason. So yeah, it, because there's always overhead and, and heartache that comes with any new thing that you add. So, so the, the the adage is the juice has to be worth the squeeze, right? And that's really what it boils down to. For me, it's about uh, color palette and mascot. If they've got a, <laughs> if, if they got a cute mascot and they did well with their color palette, I'm boom. I'm I'm adding that to the stack. The the logo was sweet. <laughs> yes, yeah. And don't forget about the resume. Resume driven development. <laughs> oh man, is that oh, is yeah. that actually a term? There yeah. are people that go by it. Yeah, for sure. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I did uh, some Google and try and figure out like some of the more popular document uh, oriented databases, NoSQL databases to figure out like which ones support multi object transactions. And it's funny, like the first article I came upon was pretty good. And it was kind of like CouchDB. Yeah, it's OK. Uh, Mongo. Yeah, it's OK. And I'm agreeing to the, oh, OK. Like, yeah, some of these you know, support is just kind of dodgy. And then uh, I get down to FaunaDB. I don't think we've talked about it before and you know it was great and i realized oh wait this is a this is a blog article published by fauna <laughs> so okay well let me go look at what mongo has to say about it guess what this one's okay that one's okay mongo we got right. it yeah. <laughs> like, yeah okay all right all right y'all let's see let's see what's going on here so yeah i can't trust uh, these sources no you never can um hey so to wrap up the thing with these with these additional things that transactions might actually need to exist for um, one is, uh, indexes, right? So indexes for tables, those actually have to be updated at the same time that the data in the table does. So that's important. Um, and then instead, a lot of this stuff can be handled without database transactions, but then you're putting all the onus on the application developer to, to do this stuff. Right. And this is hard stuff, right? <laughs> like this is, 
if we talk a lot about, you know, what is the core feature or what, what is the core purpose of whatever your product is? And if you're spending all your time trying to write all this um, edge level, Hey, what if this happens, then you're not focusing on, on your core product and, and the code becomes really nasty too. Right. I mean, yeah. Instead of solving the business problem, you're solving errors. Like, yeah. And when you think about the kinds of problems that you have, like having problems that uh, screw up your data are kind of like the worst problems to have. Like, Sure, uh, maybe you break the login form and people can't log in and can't check out and you lose a bunch of money. Like, that's bad. That stinks. But if you <laughs> make it so that all your transactions, like the, the totals are wrong and you don't know how much people should have been charged, like, whoa, <laughs> that's right. a whole different kind of problem that you're going to be dealing with long after you fix the bug. Or maybe the bug is uh, you you have that part right, but you um, you don't. Uh, persist the charging information, but you do persist the shipping. And so you ship out all the inventory, oh, oh. but you never charge. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you just drop the table and you've got backups, but the backups are missing a little bit of data. So it's like, you got to restore the data. And then what do you do about that missing data? Uh, well, I don't know. Backups are always an uh, interesting thing too. When you get into that situation where it's like, okay, well, the, because of the age of the backup, we're going to lose all the new stuff. Uh, and all you know, the new stuff is like in some kind of weird mixed corruption state. Like, I mean, not corrupt as in you can't read it. Just things aren't in the right places, and we're not exactly sure. Like, some of it we could tell what's what's correct and what's not, but not all of it. Yeah, all all bad quit. spots to be. Yeah, right. you just quit. You go out to lunch and you don't come back. <laughs> wow. that, that took a turn. It did. Sorry, everybody. All right, so um, so Jay Z, you giving us a late night voice here? <sighs> See, I was about to do it yeah. before you did. Yeah, I'm gonna do my best, uh, Howard Rogan here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. Uh, but um, what I can do is ask you to leave us a really great review. We really love it. it helps us grow the show, and uh, especially the more stars, the better. If I'm being honest, uh, it's, it's better for everybody. It's better for us, of course, but it's also better for you. Uh, because it makes you feel good to help people out, right? So hang out, hang out with us for a while, you know, listen, enjoy your time, and then go leave us a review because we love it and uh, because you love yourself. I like it. I like it. Jay Z took a marketing class. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Of this one. Perfect. <laughs> Who so are you and what do you do with Jay Z? <laughs> All right. So uh, with that said, then we head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says, <clears throat> all right, so, uh, what is this? Oh, two or three. So Alan, you are first. And the first question is, it's at the lake house. Oh, sorry. That was, that was the last one. <laughs> was it? I don't maybe think so. Maybe the one before. Was it? It was the, it like, where, where did bad things happen? Something like that. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember. Oh, oh, that was like in a horror movie one, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I know where your head's at. Um, all right. Name a reason you might be late for work. Forgot the, forgot the alarm. Alarm clock. Okay. Yeah. Alarm clock. Traffic. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So uh, woke up late. I'm going to count like alarms as like waking up late. Right. Yeah. 
Number two answer on the board, Allen taking a lead from the start with 26 points. The traffic's number one. Boom. Jay-Z with traffic, the number one answer, taking away that lead (laughs) with a commanding 38 points. Oh, come on, man. Yeah. And, uh, Joe, that that, uh, shifts it over to you. So let's say... Let's say this one. Name a chore that people put off because they have work the next day. Chore. People don't do because they have work the next day. You'll never hear this out of Jay-Z. None of these would ever be excused from Jay-Z. No. He would just do it. Because I got work tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of anything. A chore. Uh all right, I'm just going to uh, say something that... Are they chores if you enjoy doing them? Yeah. That's probably I, what's I going it. through his head. <laughs> I only do things that I enjoy. This question doesn't make sense to me. Um, no, I, I think I just have to not have an answer. Really? Are you serious? No anything that I wouldn't do because I've worked the next day. Oh, sweet. All right, I got one then. Okay, okay. Any I chore, mean, any chore. Laundry. Laundry. All right, Alan... Jay, well, first of all, can we just put like the big goose egg up there? Like, we gotta do that. Yes, I'll yeah. Like let me yeah. let me go ahead and put this in the official record. Wait, so you're saying you um, wouldn't do laundry because you have work, right? The next you day? just don't feel like doing it. Yeah, yeah, oh, that was yeah. the thing. So, so laundry, I would have to do laundry because I need clothes to wear. Number four answer on the board. <laughs> Dang it! Is dishes number one? Six points. Dishes. Boom! Oh, come on. JC is still. <laughs> How about I'm not even going to win by default? <laughs> <laughs> this is so awesome. God, I love this part of the show. <laughs> JC just laid down. I could run over him and still just. Oh, still man. can't think of anything. Uh, you know what? In my next career, I want to be like on a morning zoo, uh, you know, kind of radio program. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> Number one answer on the board, take out the trash for 35 points. Are you kidding me? You wouldn't take out the trash because it's work day? It's like five minutes, dude. (laughs) Man, I disagree (laughs) with these people. (laughs) Jay-Z's like, but uh, why? I I like doing that. Like, you get to go outside? It's great. That's like the highlight of my Sundays and Wednesday nights. (laughs) Wait, you only have to take out the trash twice a week? Yeah, man, that's life without kids right there. (laughs) No doubt, right? Multiple times a day over here. No doubt. What was dishes number two? Please tell me. I'm going to be really irritated. Dishes number two answer on the board. 30 points. I I guess I just don't. I don't understand this. Why wouldn't you do dishes because you have work? Like, what, you're going to leave in sync while you go to work? You also don't have kids. (laughs) Let's rewind again. (laughs) So you just leave this. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Because like, well, I'm not going to clean these dirty dishes because I got to wake up at eight. (laughs) Like, what? Jay-Z's got a spotless house. Yeah. (laughs) He really does. That's the thing. Dishes are done. Trash is out. Yeah. And for visitors, there's extra cleaning supplies. Of course. (laughs) As you walk in, like grab grab a set of gloves, you know, rubber gloves and some cleaning supplies. You know, anything that you see that you want to clean, have fun. This is, you know, Mikasa Sukasa. I think, I don't know. Like, like I'm married. If I tried saying like, hey, I'm not going to do laundry because I got work 
tomorrow. I'm not gonna. Oh. I'm not gonna do this is today because I got work tomorrow. You lose an eye. <laughs> yeah, I was like, tomorrow. We're talking about today. <laughs> I mean, you have 65 respondents. That was where we're at so far. Oh, you man. got time to lean. You got time to clean. <laughs> <laughs> number three answer on the board: vacuum, 18 points. Laundry was number four. Clean the bathroom at number five for four points and dust as the sixth answer for three points. I can't believe I picked I, out of the two I had in my head. I picked the one that got me six points instead of 30, man. All right. All right. Um, so Jay Z, you are no, Alan, yeah, you were up yeah, next. My yeah, turn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll let you pick the next question. Are you ready? Yep. Your choices are name a famous wizard, name someone you might ask for directions, or name something that comes out of clouds. Man, I'm going to do the wizard, and I'm going to be really mad when I don't get the number one answer here. Okay. The Wizard of Oz. Okay, Oz, I like it. Wizard of Oz. Jay-Z, this is your chance to retain your lead. Yeah, just know that I picked the number two answer on the board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you well, still it's still have a chance. It's either Harry or Merlin. And I've got to figure out who these people are asking. So I'm going to go with Merlin. I think it's, I think the crowd is going to skew towards the 1900s. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, Merlin, number two answer on the board. Oh, man. With 26 points. Okay. Now, and Alan? I would, I would be really irritated here. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz is on the board, Alan. But at what position, sir? Well, it's at number five. <laughs> Come on. That's so the- that's eight points for Alan. Wow. That's ridiculous, man. This is all. 64 <laughs> to 40. JC wins. Wow. <laughs> Harry Potter was number one, 37 points on the board. Gandalf, number three for 11. Doctor Strange for number four, nine. What? Uh, Wizard of Oz was fifth. Voldemort. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say it. Yeah. 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 uh, He he was the sixth uh, wizard at three. And this one, if this one had been first, Alan, I would understand your frustration. Number seven. I'm going to mispronounce this name. Newt. Scamander. Oh, that's two. isn't that the uh that's the Harry Potter prequel stuff. Is that who it is? Oh, it's like the uh Fantastical Beast. Yeah, that one. Oh, I think, okay. Isn't that you're him? right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. Look at Alan with a pop culture reference. Right? I get once wow. about one a year. That's it. Yeah, he had he had two two points. Man, I can't. The Wizard of Oz has wizard in the name. Yeah. How is that like not number one? <laughs> Come on, man. They didn't ask your grandma. <laughs> 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 <That's>, <laughs> in short, that's the reason. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> oh, man. That hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Uh, how about we talk about databases now? <laughs> you yeah, wipe away the tears. Let's wrap this. I promised myself I wouldn't cry. 
<laughs> My grandma would be offended and so very happy. <laughs> All right. All right. So here we are back back at it. So handling errors and aborts. <laughs> Jay-Z, you want to take it? I still can't talk. <laughs> Yep. So uh, the good news about acid transactions that fail is that they're easily retried. It's because they either happen or they don't, right? So if they don't happen, just try again. Uh, some systems with leaderless replication, like we've talked about Cassandra before, will follow with the best effort uh, kind of basis. They're a little bit more loosey-goosey. So the database does what it can, and if something fails in the middle, uh, it'll just, you know, they'll take what it's got. Which means, uh, as we said before, it's going to be up to the application to have to deal with that, to, to kind of take the error message or whatever and like figure out what it needs to do to fix it or just deal with it being wrong, all right, and not being able to trust your data, which is okay sometimes. But this goes back to your example that you were looking for before, though, Joe, of like where you might take some but not all of it. Yeah, I was thinking more like a, um, a single note, like a single object kind of, uh, you know, level. So at the time I was like thinking like literally with like sensor data is there something where like I would want to get or like if you're recording like you've got an audio recorder right like you know and it, I don't know this is not data this is a silly example but I was just trying to think of like something where you would want to take something like all your changes to the very last second even if it's not necessarily uh, committed yeah I mean audio is going back to your example of the the black box scenario where you know even if you don't have perfect audio of the pilot's microphone, you want some of it to be able to hear, hear it. So from an audio perspective like that, that kind of made sense. But uh, I still haven't thought of like a data use case example where that might be the case, but you, then you mentioned sensors and I'm like, Oh, I guess I could see that. Like, you know, whatever your sensors are, maybe they have the ability to like the fidelity of the, what they could produce is like, you know, uh, some number of times every second and you know it's okay if you missed some of those seconds because in the grand scheme of things you still might have enough uh to like get to whatever your whatever your need is but that's still not that single object thing right really what it was talking about was only writing half of a piece of data to make it complete so so instead of skipping seconds like that's that's more oh yeah that's true yeah, so we're talking about like writing an incomplete sensor readout, right? Like, hey, it was supposed to say 78 degrees, but it only wrote seven. You know, it, like that's but that's I, where you can still see sensor data like that, where it was like, oh, uh, you know, the, the, the data point for this time was unintelligible, but you know that you received something at that data right. point. So it's and logged that's, that's in the it. database yeah. that something came in. You just, it's, you know, not very good. Yeah. Hey, so this is funny. This is where the book actually called out developers. So talking about this, putting all the burden on application to recover from error on failure. They basically said developers like to only think about the happy path, right? So um, we're going to write our code and assume that everything always works. Well, there's a big problem with that because as soon as something goes wrong, what are you supposed to do? What is the application supposed to do to recover? And this is actually, you can spend a lot of time as a developer trying to do this right and i think that's why a lot of people just go the happy path right like oh the database will be up and working i don't need to worry about it right or i know this will be up and working i don't need to worry about it well then when it doesn't work um that's when things fall apart i mean it's kind of like the nature of how we how we do our jobs though right like 
you don't start like if I ask you to write like a command line utility to do something, right? You're going to start on the happy path of like, oh, well, what's the thing that I'm trying to get it to do? Okay, I'm going to start down that path of writing it. You're not going to write code first and be like, well, what happens if the user input this value instead? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, they're not wrong in calling out developers for that, but you're also not wrong in that you don't go for the most complex edge cases to start out because you never get your stuff done. The, the yeah, things that you actually need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm asking, is that what you said? Yagni? Yeah. And just like, we talked about gold playing. You imagine you're trying to write some little shell script to, to do something every 15 minutes. And then you so wrapped around thinking like, well, what if it fails? What if the memory fails? What right. if I can't, what if I can't trust the data from it? And next, you know, you like your one line shell script is like a thousand lines of application code. And it's like super brittle and you can't make changes to it. Yep. Unless oh. you did it right. And in which case it would look like the, uh, spring implementation of FizzBuzz. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Hey, so then they also called out, there's a lot of, so databases, a lot of times are built with transactions in mind, right? To, to do these things for you. They called out that there are a lot of, um, like object relational mapping databases or, or ORMs out there that don't really do proud by transactions, meaning that if, if something goes wrong in the ORM, Rather than building in the ability to do a retry, which is typically what you'd want in a failed transaction, something to go back and try it again, it just basically blows up and bubbles the air all the way up. And and they said that that's sort of not in the vein of what a transaction should be. So if you're building an ORM on top of a database, it should probably have in some sort of failure um, triggers and things that you can that you can hook into. So they, they called out um, Rails Active Record and Django specifically. Okay, but I kind of took issue with this part. Like, I want, I, I, I'm i with the author in the case that I want that as a capability to where I can, like, say maybe as a parameter when I try to commit the transaction, I'm like, hey, here's a number of retries that I'm willing to accept. What I don't want, though, is for every transaction I ever do, Right. To automatically get some kind of retry logic added onto it, because there might be cases where I legitimately want that error, the the first error bubbled back up to me, and I might need to like reevaluate what decisions I'm going to make. So do something differently. Yeah. Don't want it to be every time automatic without my say so. Yeah, I can agree with that. I thought it was interesting. I don't know that I'd call it out either because it should be easy enough to trap in your application and throw it into a retry loop or something, but um, it, it was interesting. Well, I can kind of understand, though, where, like, you might want the, you know, just playing devil's advocate with myself, though. Like, okay, so you said trap it in the application, but that means you've now gone full uh, round trip. If there's the ability to, like, as part of that commit to tell the database, like, hey, you know, this assumes that now, now we're not at the ORM level. Now we're assuming that the database itself has a retry uh, capability as part of the commit. If the first one didn't succeed for some reason, uh, you know, then maybe you can avoid that round trip of doing it. If the database, if you can tell the database to do the retry, you know what I'm saying? Do we know any databases that have a retry in it? I might be just thinking like, you know, in a nice clean optimal world. Yeah, when you yeah, said that, I was like, I don't know that. It, I mean, maybe it does. Now I'm gonna go look. Anyways, 
All right. So next thing that they hit on is even acid transactions aren't perfect, right? Um, we, we hit on this a little bit in the last episode. Um, so they say, Hey, this, this goes back to what outlaw was talking about earlier. What if a transaction actually succeeded, but the notification to the client got interrupted and now the application thinks it needs to try again. Um, you might end up actually writing a duplicate. So this is, this is exactly what he said. You, you submitted some things to the database. They completed successfully. So it wrote those records out, but then it fails before it can send back the notification to your application that everything worked. So your application thinks it failed. So now in your application logic, you might have it go into a retry thing. Well, if this wasn't an item potent type, write, Like in the situation where you're writing an order and some order details, um, you might duplicate that data. And, and actually in this case, it's, it's worse than duplication because now you have a new order with new order details that mirror the other ones just because the database wasn't able to send the signal back to the application that it succeeded. So you got to be careful about stuff like that. Um, they even talked about what if the error is due to overload? Um, and this is basically where it'll constantly error. I, we've talked about it at work as something like a poison pill sometimes, but it'll get stuck into a state where it's just constantly retrying, 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 and it won't, it won't ever stop. So basically it's just, it's killing the system, right? It's almost like DDoSing, um, your system to a certain degree. Um, you have to be careful about stuff like that because it can get stuck into a state like that and you need to be able to exit out of that. And also sometimes uh, retrying isn't going to help at all. Like if you've got some sort of network error or something, all the retries in the world uh, aren't going to work. And so you're just kind of wasting your time. But if you had your application see the type of error, maybe it would know, oh, okay, the database is down. Or maybe in a situation where like sometimes it's uh, normal for databases to be your unavailable or network to, to be unavailable. Uh, I know a guy who works on uh, cruise ships and sometimes they go, like, can you imagine, like, an Alaskan cruise or something? They get far enough away from their internet connection that they're not able to communicate back. And so sometimes their data centers are just unavailable for hours and hours and hours. And that's totally normal and okay. And they plan for that. But you can imagine if you have these systems that are just, like, trying to retry constantly and just kind of spinning their cycles, wasting time. And, and it's actually not that big of a deal. Yeah. So I did some quick searching. I couldn't find I – could, I think you're right. I couldn't find one where, like – there was the ability to pass in a thing to the, you know, to the database as like, like a, you know, a parameter to say like, Hey, just in case, like, here's a number of retries I'm willing to accept. Um, it, there were examples of like, uh, where you could manually do it at, at, even at the database layer. Um, and, and then I did come stumble across some things like with, uh, <clears throat> Unity framework, for example, where, you know, it could handle the retry logic, but that, that seems crazy to me that there's not a way, at all. I mean, I guess I never thought about it. I never cared, but I'm surprised that it doesn't exist to where you could avoid the round trip. I mean, yeah. you know, there was the, you, you did call out that like, there are certain scenarios where like a retry isn't worth even bothering with. Cause like, you know, if it's a, a constraint issue that you're uh, not adhering to, then it doesn't matter. Like no bother, no point in retrying. Yeah, that was actually an additional one on top of it, right? So what what Jay-Z had talked about was like a network error. But what you just said is, yeah, if you kept retrying to do the same thing that you were trying to do and there's a constraint in the database that says you can't do it, you can try it a billion times and it's going to fail every single time, right? So 
this 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 actually steps off into something a little bit different um at least in my mind like a lot of times when you see people do exception handling they'll just they'll have a try catch and they'll just catch on an exception right instead of a specific exception like um you know database can't be reached exception or whatever this is actually a time when it makes sense to have an error trapping so that you know, hey, did I get a did I get a, a constraint exception from the database? Because if I did, then I know that this thing's never going to work again. I should not retry. If I got a network error, well, then maybe I do want to retry, but maybe I'll do it with a back off of ten seconds, right? Something like that. So this is where like having multiple levels of of exception tries or catches will make a lot of sense for you, right? Especially if it's something that you know happens a lot. You're not going to go program this stuff off the bat, like what you said earlier, like it's a bunch of Yagni garbage. But if you see these things happen, then it makes sense to add it into your code and have these different layers. Well, we could also uh, smash topics together and say that like in the case of the, like a good use case for not having the database do the retry and instead taking the hit, uh, the round trip hit would be... When you when you get that uh, that transaction fail error, you log it uh, out to whatever your system of logging is, so that you could then, in some kind of a dashboard, expose a metric to show, like, hey, these are the number of deadlocks that we face, or you know, whatever our retry cases might be, and uh, maybe we need to reevaluate how we're tying together certain pieces of data because look at our our uh, deadlock rate here, for example, right? Going so back so, to the DevOps handbook there. Well, no, the, the Google SRE, I was, I was thinking oh, of the, the Google SRE, SRE yeah. book more specifically. Um, just trying to like, I'm getting an error. What's the rate of the error? How, like how, how often is this a problem? Because if you simply did the retry of that, of that commit um, in a loop, you know, on, on your, and maybe like, maybe you have, Hey, I'm going to retry it three times. And more often than not, it, you know, you're getting that error and it succeeds either on the second or third time. And so you never, ever bubble up anything. But if you, you know, going back to the Google SRE approach uh, of exposing a dashboard for that or a metric for that, then, uh, you know, you might find out that, you know, there are a bunch of quiet failures, you know, that, that eventually succeed. But, you know, it might be a sign of uh, you need to re- rethink how you have the data structured to avoid those pitfalls. I don't know. Crazy idea. All right. And then touching on on another thing that Outlaw brought up earlier is, hey, you know, there might be situations where your transactions trigger other actions like an email or an SMS message or something like that. You want to make sure that you're not just firing those things off willy nilly, right? If you're in a retry loop, you don't want to spam the people. Um, you know, Hey, this thing failed five times. So you got five emails, right? Like you don't want to do that. Yeah. This was, I guess the example that I was referring to earlier with the, the email example. Yep. And then the, the last thing that they talk about is when you're dealing with multiple systems, you may want to do something that's called a two phase commit. And again, that's coming up. I, I think we talked about earlier. There's, um, an implementation that's, that's coming up later in the book. For so is this transactions for distributed transactions. And that's one of these things is this two phase commit. So we'll be talking about that in a later episode. Would that be like the wedding commit? That's where like both sides say I do. 
Is that what a two phase commit is? It might be. <laughs> we might be able to bring bring it back to that later. <laughs> Stay tuned to find out. Uh, All right. Well, uh, with that, you yeah, we'll have uh, links to the uh, you know resources that we found that were helpful. You know, resources we like uh, portion of the show notes. Uh, obviously, this book will be uh, in that section. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. It's certainly not survey says because those people are always wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, have y'all ever heard of many thing? I have not. I've heard of many things before. Yeah. Uh, which of, okay, which many thing, which thing are you referring to? So I'm talking about a app called many thing that you can install on your favorite devices. You know, you literally wrote this in the show notes, and I just assumed that it was a placeholder because you had many things that you were going to share as your tip of the week. Nope. Uh, this is literally an app called ManyThing. So let me give you a use case here before I tell you what it does. Let's say you've got more than one pet, and one of those pets is misbehaving, but you're not sure which one. All right. So uh, I don't know. Say one is like keeps flipping the food bowl, or maybe one is uh, uh, using the bathroom inappropriately, right? And uh, you're not sure which one, you know, to, you can get the appropriate vet care or whatever. Uh, you can go buy a camera like a nanny cam or something or ring sells cameras. Uh, you know, it's it's expensive and takes shipping time. And if you've got a problem going on, like sometimes you want to just set it up like tonight and figure out which little rascal is doing you wrong. Well, many thing is an app that lets you install it on older devices, say like old phones or tablets that you might have uh, sitting around and use it as basically a security camera. Uh, what you do is you put it on your old phone, set it up, hit record on the, the camera. It's linked and uh, it's got a motion sensor in the app. So basically it starts streaming changes up to the cloud whenever it sees you know motion. And you can configure it all sorts of different ways. And then you can use another device like a laptop or a phone or whatever to go and log into your account and see your footage. And so it's perfect for setting up and spying on your pets kind of temporarily without having to invest in an expensive camera that takes seven days to get here via prime. Thanks prime. (laughs) (laughs) I love the subtle jab out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, I remember days that's on prime. (laughs) Thanks prime. (laughs) That's how you know I'm old. It's like, I remember when prime was two days shipping. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not any longer. Oh, but it's great. I think yeah, it's nice, uh, especially for the temporary stuff, because you can sign up for basically like one month, uh, catch your little rascal, and then uh, do what you need to, and then there you go, done. Okay, let's get on to the important uh, part of this, though. What was the little rascal doing? <laughs> oh, uh, there's one little rascal that was going to the bathroom outside the litter box. Ah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and now I know which one. So now clearly you've put like a little shocker down there. So if they happen to do it, yeah, exactly. jump, it jump into the box. Yeah. I'm so curious if you just got, hold them appropriately or, you know, no, take them to the vet. So do it. Like imagine if you got two cats, both are terrible. And like one of them is having, you know, like issues. Right. And it's probably because they're having a, an infection or, uh, you know, uh, they can have like crystals or stuff like that. You know, they're not doing it for fun. It's probably got something wrong going on, but you don't know which one to take. Right. And it's traumatic for everyone involved, uh, some you know, with certain cats to get them to the vet. So, so that was interesting because when you said take them to the vet, I was like, what are they going to punish them with? <laughs> no, no, not punish them. No, no. Wow, wow, right? Alan. Right? I mean, that's where my head went. Like, 
No, no punishment. <laughs> okay, fixing, fixing the cat. Yes. Yeah. Helping right. the cat. Yes, helping the cat. All yeah. Right. I know what you mean, because it could be like kidney issues or bladder issues that they, the cat's suffering from. And, and so they have trouble like getting into position, let's say. Yeah. Right. And you can so, imagine you take both of them in. The vet's like, actually, both look OK. We can do some sort of uh, procedure to kind of cut them open and see and, you know, do that. And like, well, which one is it? And Alan's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Everybody. <laughs> This is pretty brilliant, man. Like using your leftover devices because we know we got a drawer full of phones and garbage yeah. laying around. It's really great for that whole like, oh, I think uh, there's something I want to record. Wouldn't it be nice if I could do that tonight? Uh, you know, it's it's not something you'd want to set up permanently. You don't want to have, like an old iPhone four like out there, you know, strapped to your house trying to act <laughs> like a, a trail cam or whatever. Right. But it's really great for those little things like I just need to know something happens in the next twenty four hours, whatever. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was I was honestly as you were uh going through this, I was thinking of like just when I was gonna clear out my drawer of old iOS devices, right. now I have a reason to keep them around. Yeah, yeah never get rid of those. Yeah. yeah, keep the keep the drawer. Um yeah, so it's available on both uh Apple and Google's app stores. Uh and the many thing stands for monitor anything. I think that's important. I don't know. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. I didn't hear you say that. <clears throat> nope. I didn't know that. All right. So uh, let's get into my tip of the week's chapter one. (laughs) You know what? Inevitably, this is the way it works out. Like days ago, I had a tip uh, that I had in mind and then I forgot it. And then as we get closer, I'm like, oh, I got to come up with a tip of the week. And then I'm like, okay, well, I guess this one will do. And then eventually, like later, I'll be like, oh, this would be another good one, too. I'll add that one. And I still never remembered the original one. And then eventually I do. And then I'm like. Oh, well, now I have. Okay, so here we go. So I'll I'll make these simple. So the first one is uh, the Linux Foundation. I don't know that we've ever talked about this in terms of a learning resource, right? But we've definitely talked about other things, uh, educative, Pluralsight, Udacity, whatever, Uh, you know, Udemy, a whole, whole bunch of other. But did you know that the Linux Foundation actually has a great collection of courses available, and some are free, some are not, so it depends. But um, you know, you can find some really good training material out there, and you know, like I said, some of it, some of it's free. There's an introduction to Kubernetes, totally free. Uh, then you know, you can get into some that are not free, so uh, Kubernetes for developers, three hundred dollars. Or uh, Kubernetes fundamentals for the exam with, that includes the exam, and that one's you know five ninety five. But the point is, uh, you know, introduction to serverless on Kubernetes zero dollars. Introduction to service mesh with uh, Linkerd zero dollars. So there's plenty of uh, uh, you know free courses out there. A lot of good stuff, and also maybe topics that you are interested in. And, uh, you know, it's the Linux Foundation. So even if you were to, like, pay, uh, you know, for a course, uh, you know, it's going to a good cause. So um, so that there is that one. Then um, this one. I don't know that we've talked about this one. It's something like this before. But uh, we, we've definitely talked about our love of Kubernetes and all things Kubernetes. And Kubernetes actually has a list of recommended labels that they suggest you add to your pod. And it was interesting the way, uh, you know, some of them. So, like, one of them was part of. So, uh, you know, you might have a component, 
So component was another one of them, right? So the component is database and part of might be WordPress in their example, right? And uh, where I specifically found this interesting was that uh, the way they were using version versus how I recently implemented uh, our use of version in a, in a, a different use case. And I was like, huh, I guess could you maybe argue I'm doing it wrong or maybe I'm doing it okay. Or maybe I should have like done something else. Like I'm, I'm still kind of like on the fence about that, but uh, at any rate, so I'll have a link to that of the, the recommended labels that Kubernetes suggests you have on your, on your pods. It's very cool. Yeah. And then um, the one that I had wanted to talk about in more detail was basically uh, our continued love of Docker and all the crazy things that you can do with it. And so I had this use case where um, I've been, there's this one, uh, There's uh, this is for music, so you know, I'm a nerd out for a moment. Uh, but anyway, I was trying to like learn this one particular song, and I can't find anything about the song uh, anywhere like written down in written form, uh, in regardless of, you know, the format. And so... Uh, you know, except for like super basic stuff, but none of the detail that you really want to, you know. Um, and so uh, there was this one video though where somebody was playing something and, you know, they're, but they're playing it at speed and it's not like a, hey, here's how to play it kind of lesson. It's just more like, hey, look at what I'm doing. And uh, I wanted to be able to like go scrub through it, like it changed the speed and, and zoom in and see like, well, wait, wait, what are they doing there? Like, cause it's really fast. There's a lot of gain on it, you know, a lot of distortion. So it's kind of hard to make it out. Um, and so at any rate, I eventually decided, you know what, YouTube, uh, this isn't working out for me anymore. I, I want to just download this thing. And, uh, so there's this other, there's this great, uh, package out there on GitHub called YouTube DL. And I'll have a link to that. But, uh, what I ended up doing was putting together a, Docker image that runs this as the entry point and it'll, you could just give it a URL and boom, it just starts downloading, uh, whatever you want. And the cool thing where I originally had discovered this thing, by the way, was that, uh, a friend had given me a video in Vimeo that I wanted to add to a, uh, play a YouTube playlist and, I did. I'm not a Vimeo Pro customer, so I couldn't get to the video, and it was behind a password. So downloading the the original video was like super difficult. YouTube DL, this package here, YouTube and Vimeo. There's a whole bunch of different sources of places where it can go, and one of the things that it can handle are passwords. Oh, nice. So, so it'll, it'll do that authentication and like as it's downloading it, it'll download it in chunks. If it needs to run it through FFmpeg, uh, for any, any issues there, it will do that as part of it. But then it'll ultimately, uh, rejoin the parts that it's downloaded and, you know, clean up after itself. But you can like, uh, uh, short term, like if you wanted to, keep those intermediate parts you can too. So in fact, uh, it just dawned on me too. Another thing that I could provide would be the, uh, I can provide a link to the Docker hub or the Docker, uh, image that I created. Cause of course I put it on Docker hub cause everybody wanted it. So I was like, okay, <laughs> you're clawing so, at the door. Do you remember, uh, the big scandal around YouTube DL, like maybe a year or two ago, uh, three, eight, 
I remember, I know that they, they for a while took away YouTube support and then they added it back, but that's yep. as much as I know of it. So it was getting removed left and right. Uh, there were takedown, like YouTube had issued some sort of takedown notice. So it disappeared from GitHub, but people had backups of it. So they're putting it up under different names and like people started writing like tools and websites that would like help you find like another, <laughs> another place to download the package. So it was like this war between like Google and takedown notices and like just individuals putting this up in other places. So it's good to see that it's, well, I don't know if it's good or not, but it's interesting to see that it's uh, still on GitHub. I guess it violates the terms and conditions to download uh, videos from YouTube. So uh, put it, I'll put a note in the show notes about uh, speaking with your legal team before you download any videos. But we'll have uh, instructions on how to do that as well. <laughs> well, YouTube has the ability to download. They offer the ability if you are uh, like a, a YouTube subscriber. You, oh. they definitely but not automated. I think, I think it's, you're not allowed to use like a bot or something with that kind of stuff. Hmm. I mean, that that's a lot of the license agreements with a lot of these things out there. Like, yeah, you can do it, but you can't have a program that does it. Well, okay, fine. Then I take back my tip of the week and I had two previous ones and you could use one of those. So it's content. I did look it up and you should speak with your legal team about it, but uh, certain usages may be legal or not legal depending on your country and state and uh, use case. So. And those are the people I'm talking to. Yeah, yeah. right. Use it your own peril. <laughs> what were those countries again? Remind me, I forgot. Were the the ones that I'm talking to, Jay Z? Uh, I uh, legal team has advised me to no longer speak on this matter or give any sort of specifics or legal advice. Uh, amazing. Use uh, if you need a legal team, uh, you can click on our link of codingblocks.net slash legal and use our affiliate code to sign up for uh, legal advice. Of course he's lying, but that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to look for that now. Uh, all right. So it's uh, still a pretty cool tip. And the fact that you can dockerize anything uh, for what it's worth. I'm very similar to outlaw in this regard. If I can avoid it, I install nothing on my computer. I docker run everything <laughs> and, and try to do it that way. I mean, that that's the real that. Oh, that was the real tip there. It was to just dockerize everything so that you don't have to like bother having a local copy of Python and FFmpeg and yeah, man, stuff like that. So much better. All right. So mine, I, I borrowed um, happily from our Slack channel and I didn't actually take note of who put this up here. I can look real quick. Okay. So it was Nathan V shared this and it is, it's called MARP for Visual Studio Code. And you either know this or you don't. So MARP, M-A-R-P, is the Markdown presentation. Um, and it allows you basically to create slide decks using Markdown. And there is a plugin for Visual Studio Code. So if you're somebody that loves Markdown, which a lot of developers do, and you are creating slide decks and you like doing presentations, you might actually want to take a look at this thing. Um, it looks like a really interesting a plugin for visual studio code to be able to do your, your slide decks right in visual studio code. You ever feel like we're going, we've gone full circle. Like, do you remember this is, this is going to show uh, an age, but you remember like the old school text editors, like the word processor type editors where like, if you wanted something in bold, there was a syntax that you would have to put before and after whatever you wanted in bold 
or some like almost like it was in mark uh, like a HTML kind of markdown kind of thing. Except yeah. this is predates that by a long it's shot. GML, right? I think is what it used to be called. But yeah, I thought it would predate even that. I mean, talking about like from like eighties or something, where like you know to to bold something or to put it into italics, there was you know a a command sequence that that when printed it knew how to do it, but you would see it in the raw, right? You know, and, and we were like, you know what? This is just too noisy. I don't want that. I just want my word processor to just show it to me, which eventually they did do. And then they got even more advanced with like word. Now we're saying like, no, no, no. I want to see the raw guts of what it's doing. So like, take me back. And, uh, you know, now we've invented Markdown to solve that. Full circle. Always the best. Totally. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, with that, wait. Uh, I'm, re- Alan. You have like 17 more tips there, right? Like, oh, I ran only out one. I totally forgot. I mean, I, I might have figured out something useful to do this week, but I can't remember any of them. You know what? I tell you what, Alan. I'm gonna be nice. You can have that YouTube one since that one was like uh, legally, you know, questionable. Oh, you oh so, yeah. Good. There we go. I like it. So Alan has his two tips of the week. Uh you know, I have mine. And okay, so I think we're all good there. So uh, with that, hey, hold, uh, hold. Yeah. no dad jokes. Has the well run dry? Did I? I did. No, no, definitely not. I just hadn't even thought of any uh, to share. Uh, now that you put me on the spot, like <laughs> you went very robotic when I asked you. I hadn't really thought of any to share. It just hadn't dawned cooking. on me. Yeah, like <laughs> no, I definitely have some at the ready, but uh, I. I it hadn't dawned on me that I like needed to do it. So I kept forgetting. So at any rate, how about this one? We'll end on this one. Uh, why did the chicken cross the road? Oh, geez. Get I can't think of a single reason. <laughs> to get to the dummy's house. Okay. Knock, knock. <laughs> Is somebody there? here? Hold on, hold on. Someone's at the door. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. Oh, this. Oh, jeez, oh, you got me. <laughs> All right. So, uh, with that, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast. Uh, we hope we're there, and be sure to leave us a review, uh, as Joe had so eloquently asked for earlier. In the show, uh, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And this one's going out across the wire to all the Coding Blocks listeners out there. Um, While you're up there at codingblocks.net, make sure you check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and much more. And make sure you leave your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel at codingblocks.net slash Slack. You're muted. You're totally muted. <laughs> oh, I did a great job, too. I'm sorry. I just unmuted. Okay, sorry. Uh, we got uh, Howard Rogan here. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the page. <laughs> it was better the first time, but... Um, How many packs a day do you smoke? <laughs> as many as it takes. <laughs>